Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. The extreme political and cultural division in the US and other countries has created intolerance, incivility, and threatens democracy. Today's guest is Tom Fishman, CEO of Starts With Us. Tom and his colleagues are working to foster independent thinking and constructive communication across our differences. In our discussion, Tom and I talk about how creating curiosity, compassion, and courage are not only key skills for bridging what divides us as a nation, we also talk about how leaders can cultivate these skills in their organizations to improve performance. 12 Geniuses is brought to you by Inspire Software, an employee-centric platform that merges impactful proven leadership and performance models with the tools, resources, and support that your people need to thrive. Learn more at inspiresoftware.com. Tom, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you, Don. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Let's start off with your background. Where have you been working prior to becoming CEO of Starts With Us? I've had a long career at the intersection of media, technology, and maybe culture broadly defined. I spent most of my early career in bigger legacy media companies, cracked into Condé Nast, and then from there was at MTV in Viacom, now Viacom CBS and Paramount for eight years. So I kind of grew up at MTV after spending a lot of probably too many hours watching it as a kid. After that, I was at Facebook for two years and wanted to be a part of the next big thing in video after having spent so much time trying to attract the huge audience on Facebook while I was at other companies. I said, I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to do it from the inside. I was in the original content team as part of a group called Facebook Watch, working on a product that was basically meant to compete with YouTube. And then was the GM of a medium-sized interactive video tech company called Echo, which built a proprietary platform to stream live, interactive, choose-your-own-adventure-style video, which we use to do everything from make movies to sell products and a huge partnership with Walmart. So the through line through my career has sort of always been this curiosity-led desire to see what was at New Frontiers, so social and digital media early on, and then into the burgeoning faces in and around interactive video and community-driven video experiences in tech. If you go even before that, in my time as a science guy in school, I was a physics guy. So speaking of curiosity, there was, you know, if there's any any through line to this meandering trajectory, it's that. I've just always kind of been attracted by big, complex, hairy problems with elegant solutions and big data sets. And somehow the sciences and digital media had those things in common. So that's that's been my path. Now your CEO of Starts With Us, you've been in the role for a little over a year. Tell us about what the mission of Starts With Us is. Yeah, so Starts With Us is on a mission to empower Americans to overcome the extreme political and cultural division that we experienced our day-to-day lives digitally and offline every day. We're trying to do that by fostering more independent thinking, freer expression, and more cooperative and constructive communication styles across lines of difference. And we're taking what I think is a unique approach to that in terms of using media and technology, but that's that's our mission. We're trying to scale what we call the three C's, curiosity, compassion, and courage in order to achieve that mission. We believe that those values have sort of been lost in a digitally disintermediated and COVID isolated and loneliness epidemic afflicted world. So we're trying to run at helping people rebuild those skills at scale. When you 
think about division, what specifically are you talking about? Are you talking about economic division? Are you talking about political division? Can you weigh in on that? Yeah, it's a great question because there's an extent to which we're, you can't decouple all of those things. There's forces of sort of nature and so, sociology and society. And, you know, these, these things are all, are all related. But broadly defined, we're talking about the culture wars. We're talking about the idea that whether it's public health in the masks that we wear or the vaccines that we get or don't get or our school curricula in terms of what is allowed to be, what, what books are permitted and what discussions are allowed to be had and who is allowed to speak in a room and who's not. It, it's, it feels increasingly like you're either on one side or it's polar opposite as it relates to pretty much every issue that relates to interactions or views on, on the news or on politics. And these things play out in increasingly very personal spaces, right? They play out in our families, in our communities, in our relationships, in our workplaces. So the culture wars that force us to polar opposite ends of these varying issues that span arenas, not just politics, but also these other spaces I mentioned, and, and certainly many more, are having this incredibly deleterious effect on our ability to stay at the table and communicate with each other and solve problems effectively. It's less a particular subset of issues and more a mindset that causes us to be really extreme in our thinking. And not only that, but utterly unforgiving as it relates to how we interface with people who are on the other side of a given issue. These are really powerful forces. And you have media companies reinforcing these forces and politicians reinforcing these forces. Who wants to solve these problems? Is it just the everyday American who's frustrated with this? So you mentioned two of the biggest culprits in terms of preserving these problems, whether it's on purpose or profit motivated or nihilistic and reckless. But the economic incentives and the power incentives are certainly there to keep people not only divided, but passionately divided. Because when everything becomes a team sport, we want to root for our team. We want to do everything we can to ensure that they win. When we're afraid, we are remain glued to our screens. So we know that those incentives are there for those forces that you mentioned. 87% of Americans are tired of the divisiveness, particularly in our politics. 85% think we need to do something about it. The great majority, there's a, another organization fielded similar work, an organization called More in Common, does a hidden tribe study. The great majority of Americans are fed up, exhausted, over it, tired of the gridlock. It makes for political systems that are incentivized to propose extreme legislation rather than actually solve problems in communities and in our country. It makes for, you know, just a general sort of malaise and unpleasantness in our day-to-day -day interactions with our community. You see what's happening everywhere from school board meetings, people screaming at each other to fights in grocery stores and people, you know, acting out in restaurants and airlines and on flights. It, it's, it's, a, it's an extreme vibe, for, for lack of a better term, that people are over. It's exhausting. It's unhappy. It's unproductive. It's uncooperative. And you got 87% of people saying that they're tired of it and ready for a change. So I think it's the great majority of Americans of our neighbors that are over it. But you wouldn't know that watching the news. You'd think, you know, because it's a funhouse mirror, you'd think most people are fringy or most people are upset and angry. And that's quite the opposite. My experience with that sentiment around what the 87% are feeling is that they would generally like the other people to come toward them versus create this open-minded 
open-mindedness to have civil conversations and listen and and things of that nature. Is that what you see among these 87%? You know, I'm not the problem. They're the problem. They need to come toward me. A little under a year ago, we fielded a, another survey through Morning Consult and found that a very high percentage of people feel when asked to use, to choose from a group of terms to describe their fellow Americans, they chose closed-minded, angry, hateful, stupid, which is a really ugly, <laughs> horrible reflection of what we think of our neighbors, judgmental, foremost among them. When asked how many people saw themselves as even occasionally judgmental, 8%. So everybody is tired of it. But to your point, one of the very biggest challenges we face that starts with us is everybody thinks everybody else is the problem. So we seek to use media and technology to enable the entire awareness to action journey of people. But that, but that starts with self-awareness. So we often put out media, content, storytelling, newsletters that help people in a non-judgmental and a non-blaming way see the ways in which we all have work to do. And that's why it starts with us. It's an accountability project, first and foremost. You look in the mirror and say, how can I, how can my behaviors, how can my daily habits contribute to the society I want to create for the world, for maybe my kids or my grandkids, but also for my neighbors, for my community, for myself. And then we try to give them the tools to do that. So that's the, that's the hill that we're looking to climb up. But it's a great point. So a lot of people think, Oh, I'm fine. I mean, I think that, right? It's like I have to check myself all the time. We all think that. It's a very human thing to think. We'll get into the how you're solving this problem in the three C's in a moment. But I had a revelation after the last presidential election. And this was the day after the election. So we didn't know who was president, whether it was Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And the realization was we can no longer expect to solve this problem by demanding our lunatic uncle come to the middle. <laughs> we have to go to them and have conversations and not necessarily try to shift their political position, but just listen, remind them that they're loved and, you know, just, just be accepting of, of who they are. And, but this judgmental behaviors that is is plaguing our politics is not the way to solve this problem. So one of the things about Starts With Us that's really important to note is we are not a come to the middle organization. We're not a kumbaya, let's all get along, let's agree to disagree. Those are all fine and there's, there's a place for all of those sentiments. I don't, I don't mean to, to totally make fun of them, but I do mean to point out, as you are, that they are quite limited. We need to be able to sit in passionate disagreement and in proximity. We need to be able to stay at the table and continue to work out the ways in which the marketplace of ideas and the ways in which a diversity of ideas is an American differentiator. The, idea, the sense that the very best ideas can rise to the top, that we can have the grit and uh, the wherewithal to sit in proximity to people who really have radically different beliefs on one issue, but still work together to solve problems in our community, to, you know, uh, to, to push a broader set of common ground, purpose-driven policies forward, formal or otherwise, we need it. And it's really tricky because in addition, you know, to, you can't lose sight of people's different capacity for that kind of work, for their ability to sit with discomfort. My ability to do that looks very different 
than than somebody who's in a marginalized community, than somebody who lost their job last year and is struggling to make ends meet. Like people in different economic scenarios, people in different social scenarios, oppressed groups don't have the same capacity to sit with discomfort as folks who are in positions of power in, in traditional spaces. But that said, much like with exercise, no matter where you are in a fitness journey, everybody can pick up a weight and get a little bit stronger and stretch outside of a comfort zone in a way that's strengthening. And what we seek to do is encourage everybody to do that in a way that makes sense for them in their own lives, because in some totality, you'll create the kind of spaces, Donna, you're talking about where people don't feel judged immediately for saying the wrong thing or for outing themselves as a conservative in a liberal space or as a liberal in a conservative space and immediately feel under attack because that is the way that ideas are stifled. And then the great American differentiator is completely undone. How did we get here? How did we get so divided? And I, I don't think it can be just summarized as social media. So I think when ultimately when you have broader sets of systems that feel like they're not working for enough people, we resort as a species to tribal behavior to feel safe. But all these revolutions happening at the same time, sexual revolution, technological revolution, economic, you know, it's all these things that are happening that create immense change, globalization and jobs getting outsourced, economic inequality, all these things create a sense of instability and create a sense of unease, you have climate things happening. And this is the world that we're in that demands our very best problem solving. It will demand our very most cooperative efforts to solve these problems for society, things that are both existential and things that are you know, important in our more local communities. But they have this effect of when we get scared, we get tribal, and when we get tribal, we retreat to spaces where we feel safe. We look for people who look like us, who will protect us. And I think that's, you know, broadly defined social media creates avenues for that to happen. But ultimately, it's these are really human behaviors. And this is the situation we find ourselves in. And, you know, and, and I think that at our best, human beings are able to transcend the things that, you know, make us purely animalistic. We, we are an incredibly cooperative society. We have beautiful language. We're able to build bridges and skyscrapers. You know, you don't see, you know, I don't see bears doing that. You know what I mean? It's like, this is like uniquely human things that we're able to do, but we have to maintain connection to that humanity because it is complex. It is nuanced. And ultimately that's the thing that we're trying to bring back into our discourse, into our dialogue, be it at the local level, at the family level, at the communal level, and at the societal level is this, the things that make us human, the values that make us uniquely human. You mentioned the three C's, curiosity, compassion, courage. Why are these important to the work that you're doing? So these are articulation of a set of values that we feel one, most people will find appealing and attractive and not politicized somehow. I think the notions of curiosity, compassion, and being courage just feel fundamentally not only agreeable, but have a unique space in American history and in American culture. Curiosity, not only around seeking of new knowledge, but the seeking of new and different perspectives in order to refine and sharpen my own knowledge. Compassion as defined as an, an empathy plus action to support or relieve the challenges of the suffering of others and the courage to sit in cooperation and in coexistence with people who are different than you. And I think that these are articulations not only of skills that we think have a great value prop, for lack of a better term. I feel like I can bring 
stories and tech products and other kinds of programming products to market and say, hey, if you get better at the skills that ladder into being more curious, more compassionate, and more courageous, you will be a sharper communicator, a sharper thinker, a better negotiator, uh, and a better solver of problems. Those are things that we don't have to immediately draw a line to saving democracy or preventing insurrection. Those are things that make you a better partner and a better colleague and a better spouse and a better parent and a better kid. So I think that the sense of the sale here and the value prop is really important to us. We feel like those skills are really appealing for personal growth, for personal development on the path to improving communities and, and country. And we have a whole evidence-backed curriculum that we have sourced across several institutions, Greater Good Science Center, the Open Mind Institute, which is now called Constructive Dialogue Institute, that have allowed us to build up a set of really specific behaviors that ladder into those values. And then we look to turn them into nudges and prompts that inspire and empower people to behave in accordance with the three C's as daily habits. We go to really well-renowned behavior scientists and look them in the eye and say, hey, can we turn your life's work into TikToks and memes? And generally, they're very into it because it helps scale the work. And, and we work with them, of course, really closely to ensure we don't lose fidelity to the science because that's important. You, you do want it to be rooted in evidence-backed work, but that's one of the ways in which the three C's come to life as storytelling in the way that we go to market. Am I to understand that? The way that you are influencing people and changing behaviors is through media or, or is there an app or a subscription or how is this delivered to people? The quickest way for us to get to market, maybe inevitably, is where a lot of these challenges are wrought in the first place. It's to bring content to social media. It's where people spend a lot of time. It's where if we get the mechanism right for the creative and for the storytelling and for the community, the opportunity for scale is enormous. But that's where we're playing most aggressively right now. We also do a whole stream of storytelling that's not necessarily tethered directly to specific science, but is more human interest. We bring people's individual personal stories to life that are modeling these values. We show friends and family who have opposite opinions around an issue come together in the way that they work through that issue in a way that's inherently quite messy and, and not pat. We show up at protests and rallies like the when the uh, Dobbsy Jackson opinion um, was leaked. There were protests and counter-protests down in Washington, D.C. We sent a crew down there to talk to people on both sides of the issue, obviously really pitched and really visceral. But what you end up seeing is that these are complex people. They're not evil. There's no stormtroopers. There's not. There's just people who one way or the other have landed in a particular place. So the, the short answer is yes to all of the above. Content storytelling out in social, funneling into own experiences like the newsletter and an app. And we're also building out products that are meant for very specific spaces. So we're piloting products for the workplace to help encourage the three C's daily practice because evidence has shown time and again that curiosity, compassion, and courage at work, improve morale, improve the bottom line. So a lot of different product R&D happening, but all based on the three C's and really en enabling and empowering the, the daily practice of the three C's in different market segments. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the workplace because that's where I wanted to go next. And can you help people understand how they benefit by adopting these three C's as individuals? So I think at a, at a fundamental level, the ability to communicate with nuance, to actively listen, to state your opinions or your point of view or your position on something in a way that calls people in and not calls them out. 
all of that ladders into the soft skills. In particular, I would say for the knowledge worker set, and especially if you're working remotely, but I think anywhere you are, the ability to effectively interface with other people and, and cooperate through disagreement is going to be a fundamentally highly effective set of skills to have at work. Of course, as a leader, you know, your ability to build a culture around those values allows your workplace to be retentive and to be challenging in a way that is rewarding and that drives growth for, for great teams. So I think it's crucial at the workplace. I mean, you see growth mindset as something that we sort of accept now. It's like error, like growth mindset is sort of, oh, it feels like it's always been here. Growth mindset is what was pioneered at work, like, or at least its implementation in a lot of was pioneered at workplaces. I think Microsoft sort of foremost among them, where... Microsoft just started to say, like, they didn't say to their managers, go read this growth mindset book. They said, here's the growth mindset philosophy. And if you don't do this as ranked and evaluated by your reports, you are a bad manager in your review. And as you build things into the rhythms of the workplace, performance evaluation, credit assignment, collaborative sort of exercises and team building, it becomes a fabric of what you do and not this you know, sort of external sort of training thing. I think it's one of the one of the things that DEI at its most successful gets woven into the fabric of a company. At its most challenged, becomes a box that companies will check every you know every year. And and often right right minded and good hearted. It's like let's let's do a training. Let's mind everybody of these concepts. But you're either living it or you're not. So we want to build products that allow people to live the three C's. I'm generally a, a naturally curious person, and I've become more curious when I have shed many of my beliefs. And my understanding of overcoming our beliefs is that it personally threatens who we are. What I find very curious is that people will dismiss facts in favor of their beliefs. And so I wonder how you overcome this challenge, if that makes sense. Does, it, does that question make sense to you? It does. I think that if we can do a good job helping people to understand that engaging with beliefs that are at odds with your own can help strengthen your own beliefs in a way that is defensible. In other words, like you'll, you'll have the most refined version of your own beliefs by seeking out other opinions and really truly trying to understand them. Now you might say, look, people don't want to do that. It's easier to not do that. I think that at that stage, maybe this gets a little bit of the question of who our audience is. If you are at a point where you're so fundamentally closed off to engaging with new ideas that you just won't do it, I consider that a form of radicalization. But eventually, like, we also are not a de-radicalization project. That, that, that's a fundamentally different body of work. And I think it, that exists on many ends of the spectrum in terms of ways that one can be radicalized. But we are trying to, first and foremost, get to some version of some intersection of the 87% psychographically that we talked about before, I think at some point we have to say that's not that's not the starts with us mission at this point. And I think that there's a big enough market in the at the intersection I just described that we could, you know, at, in success, have it have 75% of a group of a given thousand people. Five years ago when I started this project, I, I had some beliefs and that have been completely dismissed and changed. And it's been talking to 100 people like you that has really helped me overcome these beliefs. And, you know, I'll just give you one example. I thought it was impossible for us to go to Mars in my lifetime. And you talked to a few astrophysicists and the command senior enlisted leader of U.S. Space Command. And 
very credible people and they say, yeah, actually we will and probably within this decade. And then you have two years of incredible space advancement, you know, with billionaires sending up their own private rockets. And you're like, oh yeah, this is, this is possible. That is the most exciting thing in the world to me, what you just said. What we don't know, we don't know, feels like it, it can be scary, but we forget often how hopeful it can be. And I think, you know, I find myself thinking, you know, when you see sort of these headlines coming in about advancements in climate science, advancements in space science, it makes me think, like, the first thing people say to me when I tell them about Starts With Us is, you know, wow, that sounds impossible. It sounds really hard. And it's everything worth doing is really hard. Of course, it seems really hard and perhaps is nearly impossible given the tactics and, and the situation and the confluence of events that are in place right now. But challenges like that draw the innovation out of great teams and out of great thinkers. And great teams are just, it's just people like you and me and like the people who work on stuff. I don't think it has to always be the huge CEO. That's a part of Starts With Us too, is that we are incredibly powerful change agents as individuals. And I think just, yeah, hearing, hearing you said about like the, the anti-polarization version of going to Mars is possible. You just need enough people trying it, enough people who are crazy enough to not care that it seems impossible. And I think that's what we're trying to do here. And we have been fortunate in, we haven't even been around for a year. We'll have a million people as a part of Starts With Us before the end of this year. Tom, let's go back to the workplace. And can you talk about how leaders can create this mindset around curiosity, compassion, and courage? First and foremost, you know, you lead by example. And I think that I've found one of the great trends recently in sort of leadership is embracing vulnerability. And I think that when you are vulnerable, and I'll, I feel this every day, I feel a pressure to have all the answers, a pressure to know what the next 12 chess moves are like down there. We think about these things all the time. I, we do our best to think about them all the time. And I think that that vulnerability creates so much space to embody curiosity because I inherently don't know all the answers when I'm curious and I want to hear contrary opinions. Vulnerability allows me to be compassionate, not only in me, you know, not in the, I feel bad for you in the sympathy way, but in the like, man, it feels like we all need a breather here. What should we do? Empathy way. And it, I think that those things inherently, hopefully allow the team to feel more courageous about expressing their own vulnerabilities because that safety allows for the best ideas, for the most rested employees, for the most rewarded team members. So vulnerability for me at work has been the pathway to open the door for the three C's. Another thing that this reminds me of, and I did a, an episode with Dr. Vanessa Dresscat at the University of New Hampshire, and she really researches this idea of belonging and team cohesion and things of this nature. And she talked about the importance of belonging, and you'll never get the best out of your team if you don't create and cultivate this sense of belonging. And it seems like the three C's, particularly curiosity and compassion, really cultivate that sense of belonging. And I wonder if you agree with that. I think that cultivating a sense of belonging starts with us is my first fully remote by design job. And culture building is such a, in the broadest sense, is such a constant challenge because the, the humanity, it happens in the fuzz. It happens between the meetings. It happens at the whiteboard. It happens at the soda machine or, you know, when you take a walk outside to get a cup of coffee. And it's like, I think that remote work is, I think th th there's a lot that I love about it and that, that I wouldn't trade for the world, but cultivating a sense of belonging as a, uh, 
is very hard it, because belonging in its is embodied in its most sort of probably natural sense in a physical way. I love that though. I'm going to take that back to the team. I'm curious how much people feel. I believe we feel like a really cohesive team right now. I'm proud of that, but it's important that we feel a sense of belonging too. I appreciate that. Well, and she does go into how to create that sense of belonging in a hybrid work environment or a remote work environment, because that's difficult. And some of the advantages you have in the office space just naturally allow that to take place. But in a remote work environment, that's, that has to be more intentional. The leader has to really be paying attention. And then if you're hybrid, so for example, you have five people in a conference room, five people online, the leader really has to pay attention to are the five people in the conference room dominating the conversation? Okay, well, I haven't heard from Sarah, who's in Kentucky, you know, let's bring her in. And, you know, so, so that sort of awareness is, is required. We just had this exact conversation at, at work. Our, our whole team, first somebody brought up to me, and it's interesting too, I'd love to, so to ex extrapolate the belonging notion, right? That is a really clear upside and tie to the three C's, to curiosity, compassion, and courage to me at the workplace. But think about the sense of belonging nationally or politically or communally, right? There's amidst all these convergent revolutions and crises we find ourselves, do people feel they belong? If we don't have a cohesive sense of a national narrative about who we are, right? The entire underlying story like of America has been challenged and rightfully so in a lot of ways, but also in some ways, like a lot of people would have us believe we're beyond redemption and the whole thing is trash. And I don't believe that at all. It's a very complex thing that has in our national narratives, these insane heights of achievement and also these very ugly nadirs of brutality and inhumanity. And it's, and it's all the above, but we've torn apart any sense of a cohesive national sense. So it's, where do I belong? Where do I belong politically? Like I feel forced into one of these boxes and then I got to buy all the talking points. I think that the great majority of people are not so easily categorized. I have a belief and I'm curiously open-minded on this belief and I'm open to be it otherwise, but I have a belief that there's a balance around belonging, because I believe that duality of technology allows anybody to belong to a group that is just like them, because you can attract people from all around the world. And that's great. It's powerful. But we also have to be able to connect with our neighbor who might be wildly different than we are politically, economically, racially, whatever, whatever the difference is age-wise, I think we need both because we need civility with people who are, are different than we are. But it is nice to belong to a group, particularly if you're a marginalized person who is unable to find other people in their community. One of the things that actually was very beautiful while I was working at Facebook was seeing how many Facebook groups would come together around sort of rare or not well understood illnesses or diseases. And they, and these are global. These are people who come together as unbelievable support. So it certainly can be good, but that's such a small fraction of who you are. If I'm in person with these people and I have to experience the rest of the fuzz of their humanity and their personalities, surely we don't agree on probably most things, let alone, you know, a lot of things. And that's the, that's the sleight of hand a little bit of what happens in digital media and social media is you have a mirage of community, but all you've got is connection. And it's not the same thing. 
you had worked for a couple of years at Facebook and now you're embarking on this project here. How has the utility of social media changed in your mind over the last couple of years? I'll say, you know, a couple of things. Like one is social media rightly is dragged frequently because it intersects something that is a utility in, you know, at, at its core with something that is for profit, which just creates all the most perverse incentives. I mean, these aren't, you know, groundbreaking opinions. We a lot, this is well-worn territory, but yeah, like advertising brands, control and communication utilities, um, it, it I, you know, I'm not a sociologist, but it turns out it seems like it is not great. But also, you know, having worked at Facebook, I'll say the amount of value that Facebook puts out into the world every day in creating in creating infrastructure for people to access the internet, in connecting families, in connecting communities like the one I described before of people who are, need shared support and connecting them across distances. The amount of value that Facebook creates in those ways is, you know, an Instagram and the other, you know, can sort of extend this to all of them, but having been inside Facebook. It is incomprehensible. The question is, you know, on balance, how do you do that calculation? Because you can draw clear lines between that and what feels like an unraveling of an order that has stood for a long time. Question it becomes very philosophical and kind of breaks my brain now to think about it is, are these accelerants of, you know, are we just speeding up? the exposure of opinions that lie dormant, the need for there to be deeper reconnection with values that allows us to surf the waves of disinformation and not be totally, you know, bowled over by them. Those are, you know, it's, those are fun questions to talk about. I think maybe you know, fun, depending on your idea of fun, but ultimately they just are. The ocean is there, the waves are there, and I'm either going to align myself with those waves and surf them to a better shore, or I'm gonna to try to stand in their way and get smashed and drowned. And I think that starts with us as saying, look, you know, if if you if you shut down Facebook tomorrow, another one would pop up in its place because people want that. They that there's a demand for that and people want to be able to communicate really broadly and really quickly and get news from all these different places. The the reality is I think we need better and smarter guardrails and regulation, but also we as people need to evolve to understand the dangers of the tech. Cars didn't have seatbelts before 1965. People just drove around and flew through the windshield when they crashed until Ralph Nader said, you know, hey, uh, maybe was, you know, cigarettes didn't have Surgeon General's warnings on them. There, there were whole lobbies that tried to tell you they were healthy. We're in that early phase of all this technology. We don't have seatbelts. We don't have Surgeon General's warnings. We're just going through the windshields. All day. Tom, what are your goals with Starts With Us? Our goals are to scale the movement to the point where our community broadly defined is able to affect systemic change. Right now, we are seeking to create a community and a home for people who may be deeply divided by issues, but are united by values about how, you know, broadly defines the three C's, but about how we show up in the world, about how we solve problems, about the kind of world we want to create, about the kind of discomfort we not only think we need the ability to live with, but we think is strengthening to live with. And I think that if we can continue to build that, and hockey stick the way that we will be seeking to, there'll be a group of people who then can hold politicians to account and for behavior that's disqualifying in particular, that can hold social media platforms to account, that can hold our traditional media systems to account, that can hold school curricula to account uh, for creating spaces that are curious, compassionate, and courageous, that allow for a deep sort of well of ideas be shared and debated and discussed to allow for people to both be 
you know, assessed by the intention and the impact of the things that they say and do, and ultimately create a space that allows for an evolved marketplace of ideas to meet the needs of our time, which are unprecedented in so many ways. So the, the short answer, Don, is we're going to try to scale this movement like our lives depend on it because we need a new, new normal in terms of the way that we interact with each other and the expectations we have of a functioning body politic. Well, you have incredible partners and backers behind you. Where can people learn more about Starts With Us and maybe even get involved? Yeah, so you can find us on all your favorite social platforms, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Friendster, MySpace, LiveJournal. I'm kidding about those last three, but definitely the first, you know, you find, find, you find us everywhere, wherever you're on social is where you'll see our exercises, our storytelling, a community of people who are getting, getting involved in this and trying to practice the three C's every day. Come see us at startswith.us, startswith.us slash join. You can sign up for our newsletter and some deeper information, some exclusive content. And yeah, just everyone is welcome. Everybody, if you're willing to strive to practice the three C's every day, there is a seat for you at our table and that table is growing every day. Tom, thanks for the work that you're doing and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to Inspire Software for sponsoring this week's episode. We'll be back next week with another interview on the topic of leadership. Thanks to Richard, Jonathan, Jay, Tony, and the rest of the team at GL Pro in London for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.